Charlie Jane, do you remember when this happened? How soon until we reach the galactic barrier? Coming out of warp now, Captain. So that's the edge of the galaxy. Is it wrong that I think that's pretty damn cool? Frontiers are always cool, Mr. Reese. If only we could enjoy it. Why, yeah. I mean, who doesn't love the barrier around the galaxy in Star Trek? I think it's just an excuse for them to like all shake in their seats and have like lightning come out of the control <laughs> panels. It goes right back to like the first ever episode with Captain Kirk where no man has gone before. It's just everything in Star Trek has to be dramatic. So, of course, leaving the galaxy is like super dramatic. And, you know, Star Trek has always treated the galactic barrier as something kind of magical. Like, I guess in the original series, it had psychic energy and it could, like, interact with humans who had psionic potential. Turns you into and a then, god. I, yeah, I mean, just like Barkley, for those who who remember. I guess in some of the novels, it's made of unknown matter or unknown forces. And then, of course, in Discovery... It's made of this, like, bonkers thing that they just invented where it's, like, giant bubbles that they have to go through that make weird noises. Yeah, I mean, there's actually an episode of original series where there's the aliens for the Andromeda galaxy who turn people into soap crystals. And they that episode, Spock explains that the galactic barrier is made out of negative energy. And that... Negative it, energy, right, Negative right. energy, right. Just, you know, negative. That's all. Just like if you're feeling negative. It's just like, basically, it's just made of like bad vibes. It's a bummer. It's the bummer around the galaxy, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and it's all very scientific. Mm -hmm. And on that note, you're listening to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction, science, and black holes so vast and powerful, they juggle stars like they were ping pong balls. I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction, and my latest novel is called The Terraformers. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who thinks a lot about science, and my latest novel is Promises Stronger Than Darkness, and I'm also writing the comic New Mutants, Lethal Legion. Today, we are delivering the State of the Galaxy Address. We're going to be talking about how humans figured out that we're living in a galaxy and how science fiction represents other galaxies. But most importantly, we're going to be talking about the latest scientific hypotheses about galaxies with the incredible Molly Peoples. She's an astronomer with the Space Telescope Science Institute and Johns Hopkins University, and she studies where galaxies come from and what they're actually made of. Also, on our mini-episode next week, we'll be talking about an incredible expedition that I went on during my summer vacation earlier this year— it involves estuaries, nitrogen, and a mass spectrometer. Ooh. I know. Yeah, and speaking of mini-episodes, did you know that this podcast is entirely independent and it's funded by you, our listeners, you. through Patreon? That's right. If you become a patron, you are making this podcast happen. And you know, you get mini episodes every other week in between our regular episodes and you get access to our discord channel where we're just hanging out all the time and spouting off like our views on everything in the news and everything else think about it all of that could be yours for just a few bucks a month anything you give us goes right back into making our opinions even more correct so find us at patreon.com slash our opinions are correct 
Okay, let's get into the galaxy. So, Adelaide, it feels like we've always known that there was a thing called galaxies around us, but of course that's not true. How did we first discover galaxies and like figure out what they actually are? Yeah, it's the whole history of this is kind of a situation where people saw things and didn't really understand what they were. So we kind of knew about the Milky Way starting thousands of years ago, but people just didn't know really what it was. They just thought literally it was a bunch of milk in the sky at some point. And the word galaxy is actually from the Greek for circle of milk. So we've always kind of had this idea that it was out there, but it really gets started in terms of knowing that it's full of stars in the Middle Ages in the Islamic world. And there's this Persian astronomer in the 900s named Abdul Rahman al-Sufi, And he worked as an astronomer in the royal court in what is now Iran. And in 964, so over a thousand years ago, he published a book called The Book of the Constellations of the Fixed Stars. And this was a dramatic scientific update on observations that Ptolemy had made in the early first millennium. He's a, Ptolemy was this famous Hellenic astronomer who identified 48 constellations And al-Sufi comes in and is like, look, we really know a lot more about this now. We're going to update it. And um, so the Book of the Constellations of the Fixed Stars is a compendium of all the constellations that were known. And it included, for the first time, this cloudy object. And there's little known about what it is. And he just records it as a cloudy object. And now we know that it was the Andromeda galaxy. And this becomes kind of a theme. Like people keep seeing Andromeda and saying, there's this weird cloudy object out there. We're not sure what it is. They don't realize that it's literally thousands, millions of stars. So many astronomers in the Islamic world are building on al-Sufi's work over the next couple of centuries. They're writing in Arabic because that was the lingua franca of science at that time, uh, because all of the great work on astronomy and math were being done in the Islamic world. And there are just a bunch of astronomers doing things like using parallax to figure out that the Milky Way is incredibly far away from Earth. And they start hypothesizing that the Milky Way is probably made up of a bunch of stars, but no one can see clearly enough to find out. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, I feel like again and again, we find out that while Europe was kind of, you know, stuck in this sort of dark ages of of indulgences and, you know, superstition, the Islamic world was just rushing forward with like scientific advancements and huge innovations in mathematics, especially. And that was really where all the action was happening for hundreds of years. That's right. And while I was researching, I found this really interesting story from the 14th century about a Syrian legal scholar and imam who's known as Ibn al-Khaim. 
And he wrote this book whose title is sometimes translated as Key to the Blissful Abode or Key to Happiness. And you can find excerpts from the book all over the place because it's such a big book that people will kind of take out chunks of it. But it's basically a massive treatise on science and religion. And there's a long section in it about why superstition is terrible and how astrology is total bunk. And to bolster his argument, Ibn al-Khaim points out that the constellations can't possibly influence us because the Milky Way is so full of stars that it's not really proper to reduce them to their constellations. And plus, he adds, we don't know enough about the stars and their positions to even make claims about what a constellation is or isn't. And what's interesting about this is that He's not an astronomer. He's more like a cultural critic who's just read a lot about the latest science and really believes in being immersed in science as a way of being a a good person. And he's aware that there's tons of stars out there, more than we can perceive. And what that shows is that it was so widely accepted at that time that the Milky Way was basically a galaxy that even this guy who's not even a scientist is able to very emphatically fight back against superstition using this widely understood knowledge. And I have to say that part of the thing about the story that I love is that even back in 14th century Damascus, people were mad about astrology and how astrology was like leading the masses astray. Yeah. And you know, I mean, you only have to look up at the night sky on a night without a lot of light pollution and you can see that there's just so many stars out there and you have to wonder what's holding them together. What's the Why are there so many stars out there if we want to believe in this simplistic, like, we're the center of the universe view, which a lot of people did at the time? So then what happened? Okay, so then things start heating up and some science starts moving over to Europe. And in the late 18th century, there's a big development when a French astronomer named Charles Messier tries his own hand at creating something like Al-Sufi's book of the constellations of the fixed stars. So Messier goes on top of a hotel in Paris and is able to use his four-inch refracting telescope, which would have been really badass at the time, to look for new objects that he wants to catalog. And so he can add to general knowledge about constellations, but also just about objects in the sky. So he's not really looking at constellations anymore. He's looking for new weird stuff. So in 1781, He publishes a list of those objects, which people still use today. It's called the Messier Catalog. There are about 110 objects in the catalog, some of which were added actually after Messier died, which is a whole other thing. But 40 of those objects are galaxies. And when Messier saw them, just like when Al-Sufi saw Andromeda, he just sees these cloudy things. And this was a period of time when people already knew about nebulas. So they knew there were these cloudy objects called nebulas. So he misidentifies these 40 galaxies as nebulas. And he also sees star clusters, which are just really densely packed regions of stars. These are called globular clusters now. He also thinks those are nebulas because, again, they just look fuzzy on his telescope. So the Messier catalog, like I said, it's still used now by amateur astronomers like me. And it's kind of like how bird watchers look for certain birds. When you start out as an amateur astronomer, you try to find all these different Messier objects because they're really easy to see, even if you have a pretty low-grade telescope. 
And each object is called M-whatever number. Andromeda is M31. People still call it M31. It's my favorite. Uh, It's the closest galaxy to us, so it's hard not to love it. Eventually, it's going to actually slam into the Milky Way, um, but not while we're still around. That'll take billions of years. But I think, again, the, the important thing is that Messier sees all these galaxies, but he doesn't know that they're galaxies. He just thought they were weird things inside the Milky Way. Wow. When I think about 40 galaxies, it just reminds me of that guy who used to walk around downtown San Francisco with a big, like, (laughs) sign saying 12 galaxies, impeach Clinton, and, like, eventually impeach Bush, (laughs) and then impeach Madison and Jefferson. And he had this whole, like, he had a very complicated sign about, like, 12 galaxies and how there was zexatronic radiation influencing our political system. And, you know, what would he even do with 40 galaxies? I don't even know. I know. He obviously hadn't even seen the Messier catalog, even though it's over 200 years old at this point. Yeah. So, okay. So you have Messier and people like that thinking these are just nebulas or like weird smudges. When did people first realize that these were actual galaxies? Yeah. So amazingly, it's not until the early 20th century, which is amazingly recent, given that people had actually been seeing these things for at least 2000 years. So the guy who's credited with finally identifying a galaxy outside of the Milky Way is Edwin Hubble. He was an American astronomer, and he basically managed to get some time on the world's largest telescope in 1919. That was the Hooker Telescope, well-named, on Mount Wilson, which is near Los Angeles. And this was a telescope that was used in lots and lots of discoveries at that time. And it's kind of funny because Hubble gets all this credit, but he didn't actually discover galaxies beyond the Milky Way. People had been observing them for centuries, like I said. So what he did have was access to this really powerful telescope, and he knew about the recent discovery of a Harvard astronomer named Henrietta Leavitt, and she had figured out a thing called a standard candle— In this case, the standard candle was a Cepheid variable star. So, okay, what is a standard candle? You're probably wondering. Sounds great, right? Standard candle could be like a great like emo band. So a standard candle is any type of star whose brightness is consistent no matter where it is. And Cepheid variable stars are like that. You always know how bright they're going to be no matter where you find them. They're just a very regular kind of variable star. And it's perfect for measuring distances because if the standard candle is dim, we know it's further away than a standard candle that's bright. So we can use that star to tell us, am I looking at a really distant object? Am I looking at something really close up? And so Leavitt had been observing these Cepheid variable stars and realized, oh my God, these are great standard candles. Their brightness is totally predictable. So now I have to ask, where's the Leavitt Space Telescope? Like, why doesn't she get a freaking space telescope? Yeah, good question. So there was a movement to try to name the Webb Telescope after Henrietta Leavitt, but that did not work. Uh, But there is a telescope that is named after her. It's in Texas, and it is a telescope for doing major surveys of the sky. So it's kind of honoring what she was good at. But yeah, she didn't get the big acknowledgement. She got the kind of footnote. And it's not a space telescope. I mean, come on. I know. 
I really wish that there was a bit more acknowledgement because she's really the person whose research allowed us to discover galaxies. Yeah, so Hubble uses Leavitt's discoveries. He has it in the forefront of his mind. And then he basically just aims the Hooker telescope at some of Messier's spiral nebulas, right? Because remember, he thinks they're nebulas. So lots of people, including Hubble, had suspected that these were probably galaxies, but they didn't have a way of proving it. But luckily, he found some of Leavitt's Cepheid variable stars, those standard candles, in M31. Remember, my favorite uh, Messier object, the Andromeda galaxy, which at the time was known as the Andromeda Spiral Nebula. But what he found was that those standard candles were dim enough that it became completely obvious that Andromeda was not inside the Milky Way, was way further away. And it was freaking packed with stars. So it's obvious that we've got a bunch of stars. They're not inside our galaxy. They're somewhere else. And so this is just mind-blowing. And Hubble is so excited that instead of going the standard scientific route and, like, giving a paper at a symposium and publishing a scientific paper, he goes right to the New York Times. And he's like, dudes, I totally found this thing. So in 1924, there's a huge splash in the media where he announces this discovery. And I have no idea if he credited Leave It or not, but he gets all the glory. So you you say that people had already theorized that these things that we thought were nebulas might be galaxies, but how did we come up with the idea that there was such a thing as a galaxy, that the stars aren't just like equally spread across the universe? I mean, that's really because of Hubble's announcement um, using uh, Leavitt's standard candle. So we people knew that there were tons of stars spread out everywhere, and they assumed that the Earth and our star were kind of nestled in like a giant Milky Way and that everything was inside. So it was believed, basically until Hubble's announcement, it was believed that there was one galaxy and Uh, we were in it. Okay. Okay, so now we have the Hubble Space Telescope uh, named after Edwin Hubble. And what has it told us about galaxies that we didn't already know? So it's told us a bunch of stuff, but the really big deal from the Hubble telescope came in 1995 when scientists who'd been working on the telescope for about 16 years knitted together a bunch of images they'd taken that were the deepest images of the universe that had ever been produced. And they put all those images together in a mosaic, which was called the Hubble Deep Field Image. It showed about a quarter of a billion galaxies. And the image was gorgeous. Like, you can see it online. I personally remember when it came out. It's just incredible because you can just visualize all of these stars. And it was astonishing because you realize as you look at it, the galaxies aren't all spirals. They come in a ton of shapes and sizes and colors. And suddenly the universe looked a lot bigger and weirder than it ever had. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, obviously we had science fiction for decades where there's like a galaxy involved, like Star Wars. It's a a galaxy far, far away. But in the 90s, around the time you get that deep field image, you suddenly have a lot of science fiction that deals with like galaxy spanning civilizations. You know, Ian M. Banks, Werner Vinge are writing about like huge civilizations that like are, you know, galaxy wide. And suddenly you have this really concrete vision of like, 
what the next step in human civilization could be after we spread out among the stars. Maybe we spread out through the whole galaxy, maybe a bunch of galaxies. Yeah, I was thinking that the Hubble Deep Field image was kind of like the blue marble image taken of Earth back in 1972, which was the first time that a lot of people had ever seen Earth from a distance in this gorgeous color. And it was just a radical change in perspective. It really shifted how people looked at our place in the universe. Yeah, and it's interesting that we still don't see that much science fiction featuring other galaxies in relation to our own. And, you know, obviously Star Trek has the galactic barrier. It has intruders from Andromeda. I guess Star Wars in the expanded universe had invaders from another galaxy called the Yu John Vong. But, you know, (laughs) in general, there's not a lot of, like, our galaxy, the Milky Way, in relation to other galaxies. And, like, the thing that's interesting in Star Trek is that there's sort of this suggestion that the physical laws of the universe might change when you leave our galaxy, which is really interesting and something I'd love to see more science fiction deal with. Yeah, I almost feel like that's a trope, that other galaxies would have different physics or different physical laws. But then I I think back on Star Wars, where, you know, it's set in a galaxy far, far away. And I feel like that's a science fictional way of saying basically once upon a time. You know, it's like, it lets us know that we're in this radically different place where anything could happen. Similarly, uh, Stargate Atlantis is set mostly in the Perseus galaxy, and that's where the lost city of Atlantis is. So again, it feels fantastical. It's very once upon a time. Yeah, and one of our all-time favorite TV shows, the sadly canceled too soon Vagrant Queen, takes place in a distant galaxy, and someone from Earth is like flung into this other galaxy and has to kind of make his way in this very different world. Again, there's that license of like, we're no longer in the Milky Way galaxy, so things can get super, super weird. Yeah, I feel like when we deal with other galaxies in science fiction, it's either that kind of fairy tale idea, like somewhere far away where anything could happen, or it's like, it's a distant frontier, you know, and it it might be completely bonkers scientifically. And we never really talk about galaxies as just an ordinary part of the universe. But after the break, we're going to remedy that. We're going to talk to astronomer Molly Peoples, who studies the way real galaxies actually behave. Now we're joined by Molly Peoples, who is an Aura Associate Astronomer at the Space Telescope Science Institute and a research scientist at Johns Hopkins University who studies the evolution of galaxies as well as the physics of how galaxies interact with the circumgalactic medium, which is all the stuff that surrounds galaxies like dust and wayward stars and mini galaxies. We are so glad to have you here to weigh in on the state of the galaxy. Welcome, Molly. Hello. (laughs) So I wanted to just start by giving people a really concrete picture of what we think galaxies look like and what they're made of. I think we have a lot of ideas and we've seen images from, you know, the Hubble Deep Field. But when we're talking about a galaxy, what is it beyond just a bunch of stars? Yeah, so I like to think of galaxies as the main thing they do is they convert cosmic gas into stars. And so at their heart, they've got a lot of uh, gravity, primarily from dark matter. 
And this attracts a lot of the, the gas um, from you know, the cosmic web from the outskirts of the universe. And that gas, as it uh, cools and condenses, um, it gets dense enough to start forming stars. And then once those stars blow up, they will create all of the elements that we know and love, such as oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, iron, you know, those things that make up life. They're not just hydrogen and helium. And as those stars blow up, they'll expel that material back into the gas inside the galaxy and outside of the galaxy itself. And some of that gas will then continue to cool and condense and form new future stars. Um, so that's most of what galaxies are doing is just turning gas into stars, um, many stars at a time. It sounds like an awesome job. <laughs> <laughs> so we were joking about like how Star Trek has this barrier around the galaxy, which is made out of negative energy. Uh, but what actually does surround our galaxy and what is the circumgalactic medium and what's it made out of? Yeah, so the circumgalactic medium is basically the stuff that, roughly speaking, is gravitationally bound to the galaxy, but is not, you know, necessarily what we think of when we look at a galaxy and we see something that's that's full of stars. The area that um, all of the gas that's flowing into the galaxy has to pass through to get to, it's the region that all of the gas that is being blown up out of stars is going back out into. It's a pretty dynamic place, but it's also huge. Um, that I think one of the things that's really, you know, unappreciated and that I definitely try to not think of on a daily basis because it's kind of mind-breaking um, is just how big galaxies are. So, for example, if um, our own Milky Way galaxy was about the size of a city, you know, maybe you know, 10, 20 miles in size, the nearest galaxy would be hundreds of miles away with basically, you know, no other, you know, metropolitan areas um, in the in-between. And that area would be then filled with what we call the circumgalactic medium. I always wonder, like, when you talk about the circumgalactic medium, say just around the Milky Way, like, I think of the Milky Way as being kind of a flat, disk, a flat circle, if you will. But does the circumgalactic medium mean that actually I should really be thinking of the galaxy as more like a sphere or is a sphere the wrong shape also? Sphere is not wrong. I like to think of it as kind of the full ecosystem. It's really easy when we look at some of these pictures from uh, telescopes to be like, okay, here's an edge to the galaxy. Mm -hmm. uh, and in some sense there is, but in another sense it's you know, sort of fuzzy and it kind of peters out and just gets, you know, more and more rural as you, as you go out. There are also stars in the circumgalactic medium, um, something we call the stellar halo instead of the gaseous halo. Mm -hmm. um, and, but they're just much more diffuse and few and far between than they are um, in the actual plane of uh, a galaxy like the Milky Way. So I know that you've been working on a project called Foggy, figuring out gas and galaxies in Enzo. And part of that, you've produced some incredible simulations of galaxies interacting with each other. And there's one that shows a Milky Way-like galaxy evolving over billions of years. And it's just so exciting and action-packed and full of galaxies smashing into each other. And so can you talk about like what goes into that movie and where you get the data to create it and, and what we're actually seeing when we look at that film? Yeah, so the Foggy Project is a bunch of simulations, so fake universes in boxes um, that we've evolved with the Enzo code, hence the E, Enzo, and Foggy. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And part of the figuring out gas and galaxies in Enzo is that the great thing about uh, these fake universes is that unlike our own real universe, we can actually go in and pick apart everything and find out what's really going on um, and then compare that to what we would look at uh, if we were observing it with a real telescope. So the way that I ran these simulations, these simulations were all run on uh, NASA's Pleiades supercomputer um, and took several years to run. Uh, so it's not a small undertaking to do one of these. Amazing. Um, is you, we started with initial conditions, basically the, by observations of the cosmic microwave background, um, astronomers have gotten a pretty good idea of like what the statistical fluctuations in density in the universe are. And we just evolve that forward with time with models for um, estimating how, you know, we know how gravity works. We basically know how uh, fluid dynamics works following that gas through time. Um, and we put in prescriptions for, you know, okay, if the gas gets this dense, we're going to let it form some stars. And then those stars are going to have material go back into their environs. Uh, one of the people I work with likes to say that if you were going to have a perfectly accurate model of the universe. Uh, it'd have to be the size of the universe. So we do have to make some approximations. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, so what you're seeing in these movies is uh, what we think the formation and evolution of a galaxy, uh, like Charlie Jane said, like our own Milky Way uh, would actually look like. And definitely one of the misconceptions when you look at some of these, you know, many observations of, of galaxies is that galaxies are these, you know, stayed you know, you know, very long lasting things that kind of look the same way for a long time. But that's only because human lifetimes are very, very short compared to the many billions of years that it takes to build a galaxy. And one of the ways the galaxies grow is by colliding with other galaxies. And that's a lot of what you see going on in a lot of these movies. And what's happening there is the galaxies are so big with so much space in between the stars that when two galaxies collide, the stars don't actually collide with one another. So much empty space, they're just kind of whooshing past one another um, and just inter interacting gravitationally. But the gas um, that comes in with both galaxies, that gas will come in and, you know, shock in a big train wreck and often then form extra stars that then you can see some of these movies will blow up pretty soon and, you know, expel much more gas out um, into their environs. And that's a lot of what you're seeing going on in some of these. It's It really is cool. We'll link to it in the show notes. Like, I love just watching giant galaxies smash into each other. It's basically yeah. science fiction. Like, you, I mean, it's highly accurate science fiction. You've created a simulated yeah. universe. It's, um, it's so awesome. So, okay, do we know what happens when, when two galaxies smash into each other? Each of those galaxies, well, most galaxies have a giant black hole at their center, right? So what happens to those two black holes? Do they fight? Do they become friends? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a great question. The short answer is that they probably eventually end up merging. Um, the longer wow. answer is we don't really know in detail how that happens, um, that that, you know, gravity is going to do its thing and they're going to eventually end up settling down at the center of uh, the newly formed galaxy and, you know, going around one another pretty fast and continuing to eat up the gas at the center there. 
the details of how they do that final last merge is still an area of open active research, both in trying to like get observations to what's going on there um, and an understanding from a theoretical point of view. Um, but that's, you know, there's no reason to expect that they don't eventually merge, the, but the details of how it happens don't really understand yet. So, you know, we used to sort of think that the Milky Way was this like, at least I used to see images of the Milky Way as this perfect spiral with lots of like arms going off in all directions. And now the latest research suggests that it's a barred spiral with like a bar across and that we have fewer arms than we thought. Since we're viewing it from one vantage point from edge on and it just looks like a big line across the sky, how actually do we figure out what our galaxy looks like from a distance kind of from outside of it? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, because in some ways, our own Milky Way is the easiest galaxy to observe because it's the closest. Yeah, and in other ways, <laughs> we're in it. Difficult one because we're in it. So the there are a lot of galaxies that are spiral galaxies that have bars. So if we do have a strong bar or a weak bar at the center of the galaxy, that's not unusual. Um, and oftentimes, galaxies that used to have a bar will no longer, and then it'll come and go. Um, so that's not not surprising uh, that we probably do have a bit of a bar at the center of the galaxy. The way that people go about studying how, you know, what the actual structure of the Milky Way might look like is, uh, the short answer is very painstakingly. Um, <laughs> what you have to do is actually find a good sample of stars, both between us and the center of the galaxy and then further out, and try to measure their distances, which is notoriously the most difficult thing to do in astronomy is measure the distance to something. Mm -hmm. And try to measure its velocity, both relative to us and on the sky, to try to map out a full orbit. And then piece all of those together to try to figure out what a full dynamical model might be. And yeah, it's definitely an active piece of thing where people are like, well, we think if we you know, connect these dots, we'll have a spiral arm. And other people are like, actually... I think we might just be saying that because those are the brightest things and we haven't looked over here. Um, so it's definitely an active piece of, of research to try to figure out exactly what the spiral arm structure of our own Milky Way might look like if viewed from the outside. Right. So it's kind of just right now, it seems um, likely that it has a bar, but we can't actually go measure that and say like, all right, we saw the bar. Yeah, I think the um, the idea that the Milky Way is a bar galaxy is pretty much is a much firmer idea right now than the the details about exactly how many spiral arms we have and which stars may or may not be in the spiral arms. Cool. Yeah. All right. So we definitely have a bar. This is yeah. not the kind of bar where you can go get a whiskey, but you know, <laughs> it's still pretty cool. I was wondering if there's like a normal way that galaxies form and a, like a, a norm for how they look or are they all just super different? Yes and no. Yeah, so in some ways, galaxies like our Milky Way are kind of the most normal. We're a pretty normal mass um, in a pretty normal environment. And we've had a pretty normal history to the extent that there is a whole area where people will compare, you know, our own Milky Way, which we can, again, study in lots of detail to other galaxies. And there's a lot of hair pulling, but like, oh my God, what if the Milky Way is not actually perfectly normal? Um, <laughs> and as we know with humans, everybody's normal until you look at them a little bit closely and then nobody is normal whatsoever. Yeah. Right? But galaxies that tend to be uh, smaller than the Milky Way tend to have 
formed their stars in a much more stochastic way. So they might be formed a little bit and then kind of stopped and then formed some more and then kind of stopped. Mm -hmm. Um, They have morphologies and shapes and kinematics that oftentimes are much more of an irregular mess than the nice spiral disc that we get out of the Milky Way. So they look sort of like a blob or like... Yeah, um, just a lot more disordered, and mm-hmm. they're they they may not be have as much rotation in them as you know, like a nice frisbee disc, like like the Milky Way. Mm-hmm. And then galaxies that are more massive than the Milky Way, oftentimes they got more massive because they formed a lot of their stars really early on, um, or they've merged with a lot of other galaxies. And mostly, they've kind of stopped forming stars and. So they tend to be much more the colors of older stars, so much redder mm. and bluer, and they look very smooth on the sky. They have much less gas because they basically converted all of their gas into stars at this point. But, you know, they're exceptions to all of those rules. They're, they're galaxies that are much more massive than the Milky Way. They're still very happily forming stars, that, you know, very, very quickly. There are uh, small dwarfy galaxies, especially near the Milky Way, that no longer are forming stars. Um, And part of this is thought because when they enter, you know, the circumgalactic medium of the Milky Way, well, the Milky Way is taking all of the gas out in order to form its own stars. And and so those, you know, tiny things aren't able to get more gas to form more stars themselves. And of course, galaxies way back in the day, billions of years ago, um, were on different parts of these trajectories um, and generally just looked like much more train wrecks than the nice orderly things that we see today. (laughs) <laughs> train wreck galaxies. So the the Magellanic clouds that are in that are in orbit around our galaxy, those are examples of the tiny kinds of galaxies that are all of their gas is being suctioned off by the Milky yeah, Way. Yes, so the Magellanic clouds are examples of what are called dwarf irregular galaxies, meaning they are smaller and they have this irregular morphology um, that are you know kind of blobby looking. They are still forming stars. Um, oh, okay, cool. But Good job. Um, yeah, but the ones that are, you know, those are ones that are like one-fifth to one-tenth the size of the Milky Way. Um, it's the ones that are much smaller that um, generally have have stopped forming stars. So when did galaxies first evolve? And when we're looking at like really distant galaxies, are we just seeing, you know, we're seeing the light obviously from a long time in the past. So what can we deduce about how those galaxies are behaving now? Yeah. So galaxies, I mean, this part, both of those questions get into like, what is the definition of a galaxy? So one of the Mm -hmm. things with the recently launched uh, JWST is it's going to be able to see, because it can see in um, infrared light, it can see galaxies that were forming much longer ago that just had their light shift from the normal visible wavelengths that we can see with our eyes to these much brighter wavelengths. And definitely one of the big science cases there is being able to look at the first galaxies. Um, And it happened pretty soon after the Big Bang, only about a few hundred million years. Um, And again, the timescales here are crazy because pretty soon is a few hundred million years. Uh, (laughs) So about 13 billion years ago is when these things were thought to, to first form. And we're seeing evidence of definitely very small, very young galaxies. Um, but people will argue, they're like, well, that's not really a galaxy. That's just a star cluster. And it's like, but if it started converting gas into stars in the presence of a lot of 
gravity, like that's probably a baby galaxy instead of just a star cluster. Um, so I like to think that, yes, uh, JWST is starting to see some of the first galaxies um, and potentially some of the first stars or at least some of the first supernovae, hopefully. And dude, uh-huh. I love that people are debating, yeah. like, is it a cluster is it a galaxy? Is it the presence of a black hole at the center that, like, people think makes it not a galaxy, but rather a star cluster? Um, I think if the presence of a gla- black hole was detected, that would definitely actually make people think it's more of a galaxy, because it's got right. more going on. Um, yeah, the... It, I think when you're always looking at things on the edge that are, you know, you're not going to be able to get more information about for a while, it's easy to argue about the the definitions. Um, the other question that you asked about, you know, what are the galaxies that we see from a really long time ago, because it's taken so long for their light to get here, what would they look like today? How do we know what they look like today? Um, this gets into like, in my mind, my I always go straight to like, what is time anyhow? What is now, <laughs> right? Because in some sense, like it's taken 13 billion years for that light to get to us. Like that is what's happening now. Now is 13 billion years ago, is 10 billion years ago, because it, you know, it's taken that much time to, to get to us. Um, in another sense, right? Like those galaxies have gone and done their thing. And 13 billion years after we observe them, they probably look a lot like the galaxies that are much closer to us right now. Um, it's, I mean, the, the one of the ones that starts getting into some of the, you know, thinking about sci-fi implications is um, the Andromeda galaxy, which is our closest big galaxy, very similar to the Milky Way. Uh, this is the furthest away object you can see uh, with the naked eye. If you go to the Southern Hemisphere on a really dark night, it's a really faint, fuzzy blob that that, that you can see. Uh, that's how like super close it is, right? But it's two and a half million light years away. Two and a half million years ago was about when like the Homo genus was starting to evolve, right? <laughs> like like way yep. way way pre-humans, right? Like this was a really long time ago as far as like our brains are able to think about. Um, but we definitely think of that as like, Oh, that's a nearby neighbor. Like that definitely is, you know, very much present day. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I guess what you're saying is that the aliens that are coming to meet us from the Andromeda galaxy might be coming from <laughs> millions of years ago. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, like, on that note, a a sort of a sci-fi question, which is, um, so we were talking earlier about how one of the tropes in science fiction about other galaxies is that there might be different physical laws. Like, if you go out of our galaxy, suddenly physical laws change, and maybe in a different galaxy, they'd have, I don't know, physics would be different. Is that possible, or is that just silly? Um... I would say it's not possible, but it's also not silly. Um, okay. That's a, so somewhere in between yeah. <laughs> on the scale of silly I, to yeah, possible. I, mean, I think some of these, right, like you get into what what is the point of science fiction? What is the point of speculative fiction anyhow, right? And if the answer is to try to teach people about, you know, the way space can really be, then like maybe things like yes faster than life travel travel is faster than light travel is possible is like not a great way to go but if the answer is like to think about you know different scaffoldings to try to understand you know the human experience 
then, you know, a few tooth fairies of like, okay, you can travel really fast or, you know, wormholes can exist or, you know, within this region, you can go this speed, but not this speed. Like, I think that kind of stuff, you know, can provide a really interesting um, structure to try to put some of these more human stories on top of. Um, but from the purely, you know, speculative what is possible, we have no reason to believe that it's possible and all observations to like try to, you know, when, when physicists think about how could the laws of physics change, we think about things like, okay, the laws are fixed, but like maybe it's possible for the individual, you know, um, constants to change, like the proportion of what is the speed of light relative to the gravitational constant relative to like the mass of the electron. Like if those tweaked a very small amount, you know, would, would we be able to tell what effects would it have? And those are the sorts of things you can also measure. Mm-hmm. Um, and every measurement that's been done to very high precision to try to place constraints on those elsewhere in the universe have basically shown, yes, everything is the same. Um, but once you start going, you know, possible multiverse, right? Like we can only observe what's in the observable universe, right? And again, that's the stuff that's that's causally connected, that's had, you know, that is close enough to us that light has had time to get from that stuff to us. Um, that maybe the initial primordial soup that didn't expand to become our own observable universe, uh, maybe some other little pocket has slightly different things. But I'm personally of the belief that if the laws of physics were different, we would definitely not have life as we understand it now. That everything's so precarious to, to get us to evolve in the first place that I think if you tweaked any little bit of it, it would be, you know, whatever the definition of life would be, would be completely different. That's great. So what are you looking forward to next in our exploration of other galaxies? Is there something that you're excited to see from the James Webb Space Telescope or some of the other telescopes that we're going to find out soon? Yeah, so I think JWST, by being able to see better into the infrared than we've ever seen before, it's going to be really nice to see some of these young baby galaxies with the same fidelity that we can see a lot of the more local galaxies and really to kind of be able to compare things, you know, um, at the same scales. And also just what we're going to be able to see, you know, into star-forming regions in local galaxies. This is going to be really exciting. And then other telescopes, the one that I'm super excited about is um, the astronomical community is working on what's currently being called the Habitable Worlds Observatory. And this is a concept um, for launch in about 20 years. Basically think the Hubble Space Telescope But instead of being 2.4 meters, maybe 8 to 10 meters in diameter. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And so instead of having to observe, for example, the circumgalactic medium by looking at shadows against background, you know, bright background light sources, you know, like looking at, um, this is where the name Foggy came from, cosmic fog, like that, we'd actually be able to see it in a mission, see the actual photons coming from it directly, which will be really, really exciting. And I think completely change how we understand galaxies. I hope they're going to name this telescope the Henrietta Leavitt Telescope. We've been like, we've been jonesing for her to have like a badass space telescope. Yeah, it's, uh, I personally think it's unlikely that any um, 
space telescopes are going to get named after humans for a while because it turns out all humans are flawed if you look at them too closely. Good point. Uh, but I still think she should get one before yeah, we stop. She <laughs> there, there are a lot of women who should definitely get st- stuff named after them. Um, but the upcoming Nancy Grace Roman telescope uh, is one I'm definitely excited about in that in that regard. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us and telling us all about the state of the galaxy as we know it. And can people find out more about your work online? Yeah. So the two places to go is you can find me, uh, my website, molly.science. And you can find out more about the Foggy Project, including being able to download some of our movies and link to um, our YouTube channel at foggy.science. That's F-O-G-G-I-E dot science. Uh, Very purposely misspelled, so it can be searched for um, on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Nice. Good, Good forward thinking. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. Thank you so much for making it all the way to the end of this episode. And thank you to our amazing producer, editor, and all-around whiz, Veronica Simonetti. Thanks to Chris Palmer and Katya Lopez-Nichols for the music, which is brand new music. I hope you noticed. It's really great. If you want to follow us on the socials, you can find us on Mastodon and TikTok and Instagram. We are also on Patreon. We would really appreciate your support. We're patreon.com slash our opinions are correct. You can find this podcast wherever fine podcasts are purveyed. Please do leave us a review if you like the podcast. It really helps people find us. Talk to you later. And if you're a patron, we'll see you on Discord. Bye. Bye. Bye.